Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, but uh, tonight we're here to listen to Kaylee Thompson talk to us about an amazing story um, taking place in the waters off of the coast of Alaska. Um, you, many of you probably know her. She's a freelance writer. She covers the topics of science, environment, travel. Um, she's been an editor at Popular Science, National Geographic Adventure, and all that. So she's she's been around and she's written a lot. Um, and I don't really, I think she's probably tells this story way better than I could even summarize, so I'm gonna turn it over to her pretty quickly. I know I've got a lot of questions, so um, hopefully afterwards she'll be willing to answer any that I have and you have and sign some books. So without further ado, Join me in welcoming Kaylee Thompson. Thanks, Emily, and thanks to Skylight Books for sponsoring this event. Um, so I'm just going to read um, several sections from the book, and I hope that afterward many of you will have questions for me to answer. Um, and they'll also be selling the book um, in the back, and I'd be happy to sign them for you also. From the window of the tiny turboprop, Julio Morales stared down on jagged, snow-sheathed summits. He'd never seen such huge mountains, never been in such a small airplane. He'd been handed a pair of styrofoam earplugs when he boarded the flight at the Anchorage airport and was told to keep his seatbelt on. And then they'd taken off, up and out over Cook Inlet, the long bay that leads from Alaska's largest city out toward the open ocean. They were headed west, over the towering volcanic peaks of the Alaska Peninsula and along the Aleutian Island chain to the fishing port of Dutch Harbor. It was about as far west as you could go, farther west than Julio had ever been. Julio was 40 years old, but he looked much younger, with big wet brown eyes and smooth round cheeks. He had a couple of cousins who'd worked in Dutch Harbor, one at a fish processing plant and the other on a boat. He liked their stories of Alaska. Just the idea of the place appealed to him so big, so empty. As the plane descended, Julio couldn't see anything. No city, no airport, no lights. Outside the window was just a wall of white. And then, all of a sudden, they were on the runway, a clipped stretch of asphalt laid across a narrow spit of land dividing two large bays. Julio climbed down a metal stepladder straight into the cold late winter afternoon. He picked up his green, oversized army duffel inside the one-room airport and found the waiting van. It had been sent by his new employer, the Fishing Company of Alaska, to deliver him a mile down the road to the Grand Aleutian Hotel. For the most part, Dutch Harbor is far off the wildlife and glaciers tourist circuit that draws more than a million visitors to Alaska each summer. Most of the guests of the Grand Aleutian are in town for business. They're men who own boats, who buy fish or fix ships. And they're fishery workers waiting to get on a boat or waiting for a flight home, sometimes for days and days and days. It was three in the morning when the phone rang in Julio's room. They should pack their bags and come downstairs, the woman from the FCA said. Their ride would be there soon. 
Julio was the first one to the lobby. Soon he was piling into a van with half a dozen other new workers. It was just a 10 minute drive. Then the van stopped. The boat was tied up at the pier. It was much bigger than Julio had imagined. This is gonna be fun, he thought, as he lugged his duffel out of the van and walked down the dock toward the waiting ship. At 184 feet, the Alaska Ranger was almost twice as big as many of the crab boats featured on the Discovery Channel show, Deadliest Catch. The hull was black, the wheelhouse a white rectangular compartment perched on the front third of the ship and surrounded by a narrow upper deck with white metal rails. Julio saw his cousin Marco. They hugged and Marco carried Julio's bag as they climbed the metal gangway onto the ship's deck and then down a steep flight of stairs and through the galley to the room they'd share with six other men. There were four bunk beds, most of them strewn with crumpled sleeping bags, pillows, and clothing. Julio threw his bag on an empty mattress. Marco brought him down to the factory, one deck below their bunk room. Julio glanced over the stainless steel tables and the silent saws. Marco showed him the enormous freezers. It seemed like they took up half the ship. The Ranger was a head and gut boat, the factory an assembly line for turning a freshly caught fish into a store-ready slab of flesh. A boat like the Ranger could decapitate and disembowel tens of thousands of pounds of fish each trip. It took less than a day to reach the fishing grounds. They were targeting yellowfin sole, but a half dozen species were piled up around Tulio's new knee-high rubber boots. Pollock, rock sole, cod, halibut, not that Julio could tell what was what. He quickly realized there wouldn't be any formal training in this job. He had to watch what everyone else was doing and figure it out quick. Julio's job was to wade into the fish bin, which had been loaded up through a big hatch up on deck, and push the fish out onto a conveyor belt on the ship's port side. The fish ran over a flow scale that recorded the total weight of the catch, and then were herded into a hopper where the bycatch and prohibs were sorted out. A stream of salt water kept the fish wet and slippery. Dry fish were too hard to move around. The water soaked the entire factory. Sometimes there would be several inches of standing water on the factory floor. From the hopper, the fish were fed out onto two conveyor belts, and a couple guys stood on the belts and kicked the fish into the right direction, so they'd be lined up head first when they reached the circular saws at the ends. Those guys were called the kickers. The headers manned the saws that decapitated each fish. The fish needed to be lined up neatly to keep as much of the flesh as possible. After the heads were off, a mini vacuum attached to the saw sucked the guts from the body cavity. The detritus was fed out a discard chute back into the ocean. The shit chute, the guys called it. Then the fish were sorted by species and size, packed into metal pans, and stacked into a plate freezer that squeezed the pans together and compressed the fish into compact blocks. It was exhausting work. It was cold in the factory and loud with all the noise from the conveyor belt gears added to the constant grumble of the ranger's massive 7,000 horsepower engines. Julio didn't know too many names and no one had learned his either. People just yelled, hey, hey, to get his attention. He was learning some of the common language though, like the hubba hubba urged by the Japanese texts. It meant hurry up. From the end of Julio's first six-hour shift, his back hurt and his arms were sore. He didn't complain. Don't think about it, he told himself. Just keep working. 
When the men went up to the galley for lunch, they stripped off the rain gear they wore in the factory, which was covered with little bits of fish, scales, and slime. They hung it on hooks, wiped their hands on the sweatshirts they wore underneath, and went to eat. Um, I'm just going to skip ahead a couple weeks now, about two weeks ahead. Julia Morales jilted awake. An alarm was going off, a loud ringing sound like an old-fashioned telephone. He looked around the dark eight-man bunk room. Most of the racks had men in them. Only a couple of people were moving. It must be a training drill, Julio thought. Then he heard someone yell from lower in the boat. The rudder room is flooding. Julio climbed down from the top bunk. Out in the narrow hallway, he saw one of his bosses, factory manager Evan Holmes, running toward him. Get ready to abandon ship, Evan yelled. Are you serious, Julio said. Evan was opening stateroom doors, yelling people's names, and shaking men awake. We gotta get out, he screamed. The rudder room is full of water. Julio followed Evan down one level to the galley, through the laundry room, and out onto the ranger's main trawl deck. Go to the wheelhouse, Evan was yelling. Go to the suits. Julio climbed to the ship's upper deck, where the factory manager began pulling bags containing full-body neoprene survival suits out of a plywood box on the side of the wheelhouse. He handed one to Julio. The bulky, bright red suits look a little like children's footed pajamas. Despite their awkward appearance, the suits provide insulation and buoyancy, and when worn properly, will keep someone dry, which is essential to retaining enough body heat to survive in cold water. Each suit was folded up inside its own bag, which was color-coded to indicate the size. Inside the bags, the neoprene su suits were stiff from the cold. On his first day on the boat, Julio had been shown the suits and practiced putting one on. You were supposed to do it in 60 seconds. The suit had a fitted hood and a flap to cover your nose and mouth that was held shut with Velcro. Julio had been told that the most important thing was not to let water get inside. The deck of the ship was coated with ice, and so Julio brought the suit into the crowded wheelhouse. He shook it out of its bag, unzipped it, laid it on the floor, and yanked off his rubber boots. He wiggled his leg into the legs into the suit, then pulled the torso up over his sweatpants and FCA sweatshirt. It was pretty easy, but as Julio yanked the neoprene suit up, he noticed a rip at the seam on the left arm. There was another small tear at the suit's left ankle. This isn't good, he thought. If we go down, I'm in trouble. There were other guys waiting to get into the wheelhouse to put their suits on. Julio went outside. It was snowing and windy. Only his face was exposed, but Julio was still cold. He stared back toward the ranger's trawl deck. It looked lower than normal. He watched as a big wave crested over the stern. Jesus, that's bad, he thought. Everyone seemed calm, though. This ship has huge bulge pumps. They should be working now, Julio told himself. He'd just wait, he thought, and things would be okay. Um, I'm just going to now skip ahead to um, about the same time on an island about 200 miles away. Can everyone hear me okay? I feel like I'm far, further away than I should be. <laughs> It was just before 3 a.m., and Coast Guard pilots Steve Bond and Sean Tripp were sprawled out in the tiny pilot's lounge on St. Paul Island, locked in the late-night Xbox battle of Call of Duty 4. 
The men were on a barren five by seven mile speck of rock in the middle of the Bering Sea, the largest of five tiny islands collectively known as the Pribilofs. Outside, the wind whipped across the tundra, building a wall of snow against the room's single narrow window. During the winter crab fishing season, the Coast Guard forward deploys helicopter rescue teams to four-man crews comprised of a pilot, a co-pilot, a flight mechanic, and a rescue swimmer to the island for two weeks at a stretch. Coast Guard Command implemented the pre-deployment program more than a decade ago in response to a sky-high fatality rate among crab fishermen. The rescuers are on standby to respond to emergencies in the fleet, which plies the 32-degree waters near the islands in search of opelio crab, a spindly, pale orange crustacean whose sweet meat is often marketed with the restaurant-friendly name snow crab. Commercial fishing is the most dangerous job in the United States. In 2008, the annual fatality rate among all U.S. fishermen was 36 times higher than for all U.S. workers. In the 1990s, the rate was even higher for Bering Sea crab fishermen. Between 1990 and 1999, 73 people died in the tiny crab fishery. The gear is a major culprit. The crabs are caught in rectangular metal traps, or pots, which are baited with herring and left to soak for up to two days at a time. Each pot can weigh 800 pounds and is launched into the ocean attached to a long line that connects the trap, which rests on the ocean floor, to a buoy on the surface. It's not unusual for a crewman, especially a newbie or greenhorn, to be pulled overboard after getting an ankle or loose piece of clothing wrapped up in a line. When not in use, the pots are piled high atop slippery decks. Crewmen climb on the unstable stacks to tie down the pots and can easily fall several stories to the deck, or worse, into the ocean. The piled pots also diminish a boat's stability. Crab pots on deck make a ship top heavy, which makes it roll more easily and right itself more slowly, if it rights itself at all. During the 1990s, 12 crab boats capsized and sank in the bearing, at least eight of them while traveling to or from the crab grounds with pots loaded high on deck. Location also adds to the danger. The Pribilof Islands hug the 57th parallel, more than 200 miles north of Dutch Harbor and 700 miles northwest from the Coast Guard Air Station in Kodiak, one of two Alaskan bases equipped with HH-60 rescue helicopters. The Coast Guard's second air station is in Sitka, 600 miles south in the Gulf of Alaska. Together, the two stations cover an area half the size of the continental United States. Even if the Coast Guard instantly got the call for vessel in distress or man overboard, it would take at least six hours for a helicopter to reach St. Paul from Kodiak. The HH-60, also called the Jayhawk, is the Coast Guard's long-range helicopter, but it still wouldn't be able to make the trip without stopping to refuel at Cold Bay or Dutch Harbor or some other Bering Sea outpost almost as far-flung as St. Paul. Six hours is too long in the Bering Sea. And so, from January through March, Coast Guard rescuers rotate through winter duty on St. Paul, sleeping, eating, and often looking for ways to pass the time in the barracks of the Coast Guard's Loran Station. The phone rang a couple minutes before 3 a.m., just after Sean Tripp and Steve Vaughn had finished a final Xbox face-off. A fishing trawler was taking on water, some 200 miles south of the island. The 60 Jayhawk in the St. Paul hangar was the Coast Guard's closest asset. 
Sean Tripp did the calculations. The ship was at least an hour and a half flight away. His crew had been on a medevac earlier that night and already had four and a half hours of flying time. A crew is bagged or grounded after six hours in the air. Of course, if they were in the middle of a rescue, they would keep going until it was over. But in this case, Tripp's crew would have close to six hours on them before they even reached the troubled ship. He knew it didn't make sense for his crew to respond. He held out the phone for Bon. It's for you. Now I'm going to skip back to the ship. This is about the same time. Ryan Shuck, Ryan, Ryan Shuck stood at the starboard rail near the empty canister that had held the number three life raft. The guys in charge of his muster group were telling people to go, but they had to get off the boat and try to swim for the raft. Indio Sol, a Thai crewman everyone called by his nickname, Rasta, went first. I guess I'm going in, he said. Then just like that, he climbed over the rail and descended the Jacob's ladder into the water. A young processor named Kenny Smith went next. Ryan watched each man hit the waves and take off, two red dots drifting fast toward the boat's bow. The two starboard life rafts were tethered to the moving ship with their painter lines. The lines were pulled taut, and the rafts were a good distance beyond the bow. Ryan watched as his two crewmates drifted past the end of the ship, then beyond the rafts. He couldn't tell if his friends saw the life rafts or if they were even trying to swim at all. They were already just tiny specks, powerless under the strength of the waves. Ryan climbed down onto the ladder and tried to launch himself farther away from the side of the ship. He surfaced quickly and started swimming on his stomach, pushing hard for the nearest raft. It seemed like his strategy was working. The raft was 10 feet away, then three. He was there. He hit the dead center of the tented structure and tried to grab on, but with his hands wrapped in the thick neoprene of the survival suit, he couldn't get a good hold on the slick rubber raft. It was like trying to grab and climb onto a giant inner tube that was rushing by in white water. Ryan was up against the side of the raft, then he was sucked underneath it. He couldn't see, he couldn't breathe, and then he surfaced with the raft behind him. For a few minutes, he struggled against the breaking swells, trying to make it back to the circular shelter. But it was pointless. He was too far away and already exhausted. He lay back horizontally in the water, letting his head rest against the inflatable pillow at the neck of his survival suit. His heart was pounding. Ryan tried to concentrate on how his suit supported him in the water and how best to avoid being pummeled by the swells. He did his best to position himself with his back to the breaking waves. He looked up at the moon, skipping in and out of view in the black sky. In the distance, he could hear someone yelling, I can't swim, I can't swim, I don't know what to do. Ryan tried to talk himself into calming down. Every time he rose up on a crest, he could see lights spread out behind him in the water. It seemed like he was farther downwind than anyone else. There was a small cluster of lights about 200 yards away. For a few minutes, he tried to swim toward it, but the waves kept turning him around. He couldn't even keep the lights in sight with the way the water was flipping him. He decided it would be better if he just stayed still. Gazing back toward the ship, Ryan could see at least half a dozen tiny, solitary beacons flickering among the waves. 
There was just enough moonlight to make out the outline of the Alaska Ranger bulging from the ocean. The ship was dark, just a shadow really. Ryan watched as their bow turned slowly up, finally pointing straight toward the sky. The wheelhouse was at the waterline when eerily, the lights inside flickered on for a moment. There's still some power, Ryan thought. Maybe she'll right herself. But then, in a matter of seconds, the ship plunged straight down, swallowed whole by the dark sea. Jayhawk pilot Steve Bond was knocking on doors to wake the rest of his crew. Pilot Brian McLaughlin, flight mechanic Rob DeBolt, and rescue swimmer O'Brien Starhollow. The temperature outside was negative 11 degrees Fahrenheit with wind chill as the men loaded into the SUVs and headed toward the hangar. It was squalling with 30 knot winds and the two vehicles backed off from each other when they reached several large snowdrifts that had blown over the road. One by one, they gunned it, barreling through the heavy drifts and spinning and sliding the rest of the way down to the airport. Brian McLaughlin climbed into the helicopter and punched the Alaska Rangers coordinates into the aircraft's computer. The ship was 197 miles south of St. Paul. There was a tailwind. Still, they'd load the aircraft with the maximum fuel allowance. When the crew got to the hangar, the helicopter was already gassed up with 5,000 pounds of jet fuel, the normal load for a takeoff from St. Paul. The crew added another 1,200 pounds, the aircraft's max gas which would give them an extra hour of flying time. It was just before 4 a.m., with sunrise more than five hours away, when the crew slammed shut the helo's doors. DeBolt and Star Hollow buckled themselves into jump seats in the back, and the helicopter lifted off into the black night. Now I'm just gonna skip ahead to when the same crew is about to reach the, the site of the disaster, and this will be the last, the last section. <clears throat> the Coast Guard helicopter crew scanned the waves. It was almost 5 a.m., but in Alaska in wintertime, 5 still looks like the middle of the night. Attached to their flight helmets, the men wore night vision goggles, heavy metal optics that gave the entire ocean the neon green glow of an old school video game. Finally, the helicopter broke out from a snow squall, and there it was, a light. Then two, three, five. The men saw what looked like a poorly lit runway, a ragged string of strobes flashing on and off over a mile long stretch of ocean. They scanned the seas for a ship, but there was no sign of the Alaska Ranger. The scene was unlike anything the four Coast Guard rescuers had ever faced in the past. Brian McLaughlin stared down at the ocean 100 feet below. To his left, to his right, Everywhere he looked, he saw more blinking strobes. There were at least two dozen individual lights spread about in the waves. Oh my God, he thought, where do we begin? The men knew that the Coast Guard Cutter Monroe was making its way toward the disaster site, racing on its turbine engines at close to 30 knots. Still, the ship was hours away, and given the sea conditions, McLaughlin thought the Monroe most likely wouldn't be able to launch its own rescue helicopter. His aircraft was it, the only hope for these people, at least for now. They just had to choose a spot and start getting people out of the water. Steve Baum pulled the aircraft over the first light the Jayhawk reached. It was one guy, alone but alive. 
The whole crew could see him waving. The pilot flew a lap over the scene. There were people everywhere. Everyone they could see was in a survival suit, and no one looked obviously worse off than anyone else. Not that that was an easy judgment to make from the air. The air crew had a dewatering pump with them. Many times in the past, a pump had been enough to solve a crisis at sea, but there was nothing left to save. The Bolton Star Hollow pitched the pump out the aircraft door to make more room in the cabin. They had also brought along one of the Coast Guard's mass casualty life rafts, which was made to hold 20 people, the same number as the Alaska Rangers. There was a long line attached. A sharp tug should activate a CO2 cylinder to inflate the raft. It was best to hold the line, kick the raft out the aircraft door, then yank the rope when the raft hit the water. DeBolt and Star Hollow punched the life raft out the door, but the line had a knot and ripped out of Star Hollow's hands before the raft hit the surface. They'd chosen to drop it in a spot where an inflated raft might float downwind to some of the survivors, but now they couldn't see it. They had no idea if it had inflated or not. The raft was gone. Steve Baum pointed the helicopter back toward the first guy they'd seen. He was the farthest downwind. He'd probably been in the water the longest, the pilots guessed. They'd get him first. Ryan Chuck felt like he'd been in the water for days, but it was still dark. It couldn't have been more than a few hours. He was thinking about unzipping his suit. When should he do it? How long should he wait? Then he saw a light way off on the horizon. A ship, he thought. He knew how long it took between when you spotted another ship in the distance and when you actually passed it side to side. He figured the boat was more than an hour away. But the light was growing closer quickly. No more than 30 seconds after seeing it, Ryan heard the rotors. The chopper seemed to home in right on him. It approached like a missile and stopped short just above him, maybe 100 feet into the sky. A giant spotlight shone down. Ryan waved his arms. For a few seconds, the orange machine hovered above him. Then it turned and flew away. What the hell, Ryan thought. I know they saw me. He kept his eyes on the helicopter as it made a giant lap over the ocean. Then, thankfully, miraculously, it circled back and settled over him. The door swung open. He was going to be saved. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming. Does anyone have any questions? Come on. <laughs> it's easy. No, because it's a mile under the ocean right now. Oh, um, I, not really. I was able to um, visit a number of fishing boats and I went with, um, the some Coast Guard inspectors in Seattle who have the job of actually examining some of these boats. So I had the opportunity to sort of crawl around um, somewhat somewhat similar boats at dry dock, but um, this I think it's fairly evident. Like if we, by the time you get to the end of end of the book, um, the company that owned this boat was not at all cooperative um, with me writing this book. So. At first, I had the idea that I would try to um, get on one of their other boats, but that 
didn't work out. So. <laughs> so most of the descriptions were really based on interviews with the people working on the boat. Yes? <laughs> people always ask about that quote, the movie right? <laughs> Make me an offer, Andrew. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I'm curious because you're a journalist and obviously you've written a lot of stories for a lot of different uh, publications. And I'm wondering, did you end up going to cover the story as a magazine piece and then eventually it was so big that it could be a book? Like, did you know at a certain moment that it was a book story? Um, yes, pretty much. Um, though this was my first book, so there was a bit of a delayed reaction in me realizing that maybe I should be the one to write the book. Instead, I was thinking, um, I did, I, I had a, to back up, I had a magazine assignment for um, Popular Mechanics where I'm a contributing editor, and it was supposed to be about professional rescuers kind of more generally and then this incident occurred during the time that I was reporting that story so it sort of evolved into you know let's just do a big a longer narrative story about this particular event and um, yeah I would say within the first by the second day of actually interviewing some of these Coast Guard rescuers I was thinking to myself this this is a book someone's gonna be writing a book about this um, and then it took me a little while to stop guessing who else might write a book about it and thinking maybe I should write a book about it. <laughs> yes? Um, the question was, did the fishermen who survived quit or did they um, continue fishing? And it, it was um, a, f a mix. Um, quite a few men did go basically straight back to fishing. They just got back to Dutch Harbor, the port where they're out of, and they got a job on another boat. And as far as I know, most, many of them are still out there. But quite a few of them um, you know, did not, went home and were, you know, like any sort of tragedy. I think people had a very different, there was a wide um, spectrum of reactions to how people dealt with the aftermath and obviously those who had lost, um, you know, relatives or someone that was close to them, I think had a harder time than those who maybe didn't know the people who had died that well. Yes? Um, it happened in March of 2008, March 23rd, 2008. So this whole thing about um, this TV, the, the dangerous catch, whatever, that, that's before this. Yeah, no, the um, the TV show Deadliest Catch, I think it's been on TV for at least six or seven. They're in like the sixth season now. So it's been quite a few years that it's that it's been on TV but this um, I mean I talk about that a lot in the book because for several reasons I mean one a lot of people have that context they're familiar with the show so it sort of puts it um, you know I sort of set it up to compare what's going on on the show to what's going on with this type of boat um, which actually is statistically much more dangerous than the crab than crab fishing is now in um, in the Aleutian Islands, because the crab fi the crab fishery has actually gotten much safer um, in the last decade, whereas these head and gut type boats, there's been for this 
including the Alaska Ranger. I mean, there have been four major casualties since 2001 that have together claimed close to 30 lives. So it's actually extremely dangerous um, type of fishing. Does that answer your question? Andrew. Um, it's, it's actually not as good as you might think, but a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the people working on this boat, this is kind of, a, they don't have an awful lot of job options. It tends to be, not, not including the officers, obviously, but the more lower level, the processors, people just working in the factory. Um, you know, I would say of the people that I spoke, that I interviewed, which was a large number of them, pretty much all of them are either high school dropouts or um, very recent immigrants to the United States. So they don't, you know, their job opportunities are somewhat limited in terms of what kind of high paying jobs they might get, but the starting pay on this boat was $50 a day. And they work um, basically 12 hours on, six hours off. So they're often working, you know, 18 hours in a day. They're never sleeping more than five hours at a time. And the hours that they're sleeping are a different time every day. So they're not really, you know, in a normal sleep pattern. But the good thing about it is that, um, for, or at least for a lot of the guys, is that there's an extremely high turnover rate. So those who are able to stick around can sometimes move up um, very quickly, and there's a lot of, um, you know, potential for them to do that. That's true, and it is, I mean, a lot of them, you know, some some people said to me, it's almost, you know, it's, it's sort of like um, free rehab, you know, because <laughs> you can't, you can't really, I mean, they were, you know, there was, not that there was not drug or alcohol use on the boat, but they're also, you know, there's a, quite a high proportion of people in this job who have criminal records, who spent time in jail, who have fairly significant substance abuse problems. So it is the type of job, if you're not the kind of person who can show up for a job at nine every morning, it's the type of job where you're pretty much guaranteed to be there at nine every morning. And after two or three months, you know, even if you're going home with six or $7,000, which might not seem, you know, worth it to some of us. It, you know, it, it's a big chunk of money for a lot of people. Yes. Um, so her question was if I have a sense if, if any, um, if the book has had, or the story, the incident has had any effect on regulations or the safety of the industry. And um, I mean, so far not in any tangible way, but I have had very positive responses from, you know, those people who are in the book, who are part of that world, the people working on the regulation and safety issues. Um, I had one guy tell me that he was, you know, buying a bunch of copies to send them to various members of Congress. So, um, you know, there there actually is. Um, it's hard to know how how 
optimistic to be about it, but there actually is legislation that's pending right now. It's sort of in the committee stage that would potentially do a lot to make these boats a lot much safer. And um, just the very simple explanation is that fishing boats in general are unregulated. So as compared to cargo boats or tugboats or any sort of passenger vessel, there's really just no... Um, regulation in terms of the actual seaworthiness of the boat. There's requ legal requirements that they have to carry safety equipment, but they're really, you know, in terms of, you know, is your boat ripping apart at the seams, there's nothing to prevent you from going out to sea with a boat that, you know, literally is being held together with dental floss or something like that. It's really um, kind of surprising, which is the reason why so many, you know, why the why the fatality rate is so high. So there are people who have been, you know, working on that issue for years and years. In fact, since the 1940s, people have been working on that issue and nothing much has really happened with it. So we'll see. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, historically, that's been that's been the reason why. I mean, it's a you know, like anything, like safety and regulation issues. It's it's the cost argument. The fishing companies do have a very powerful lobby, and and they argue that it would be cost prohibitive to make these boats safer. But of course, people have made those arguments in other industries, and you know, the other industries still exist after the boats become safer. Or other yeah. There was the same issue with the with passenger ferries um, back in the 50s and 60s, and in fact, you know, legislation was passed requiring much higher safety standards for passenger ferries, and the death rate in those types of boats has, you know, plummeted since then. So, any more questions? Do you want? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just ate a tiny piece of. Sushi roll next door, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think it's okay. Oh, you mean? Okay, sorry. <laughs> I, th I'm. You can tell where my mind is right now. I thought you were asking if I stop eating seafood because I'm pregnant, not because. I'm <laughs> trying to make me feel guilty. I guess I have the guilt. <laughs> Two different reasons to feel guilty. Um, no. I haven't stopped eating seafood, but I mean, I was, I was, um, you know, that was something that I would just the health of the oceans was an issue that I had covered in various small ways in the past before I started working on this project. And I mean, what I ended up being more interested in in this case was really the, you know, the safety of the workers. And in fact, um, the National Transportation Safety Board you know, the head of the NTSB said in her kind of final analysis of this incident, you know, there's there's more laws for the fish than there are for the fishermen, um, which I think is very true. But, you know, obviously the, the health of the fisheries is a major issue, and this type of boat is not, is a very unenvironmentally friendly type of boat. It's a bottom trawler, so it's just dragging a huge net across the floor of the ocean. The argument that they make up there in Alaska is actually, well, all the fishing grounds where these huge bottom trawlers have been working for decades, the bottom of the ocean is already depleted of coral and um, all that sort of thing. So the, the approach um, among environmentalists, which makes sense to me, is more to 
um, stop expansion of this type of fishing into new areas like the Arctic. So, but uh, further north in the Arctic, yeah. I mean, there's there's a there's I mean, it's there's this whole issue where all this new fishing is just one of the industries that's very interested in what's going to happen to all this new territory that's opening up as a result of melting Arctic sea ice. But right now there actually is a moratorium on, on fishing in, the, in those new areas, which is a good thing. And over, overall, I mean, I, I think I did really learn, not that it's anywhere close to perfect, but Alaska fisheries are much better managed than most fisheries are. So, believe it or not, because I'm sure there are things that seem outrageous with, that, you know, that are in the book and otherwise, but um, comparatively, the Alaska fisheries are quite, quite heavily and well-managed. So, in general, you know, oftentimes when you, when you look at the guidelines for what kind of fish to buy, it's often Alaskan fish that's most recommended. Okay, I guess that's it. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashley and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, or at the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.